He's on. What's the story? We were able to save the left arm. What? I thought we agreed on total body prosthesis. Now lose the arm, okay? Jesus, Morton. Can, can you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't matter. We're going to blank his memory anyway. Well, I think we should lose the arm. What, what do you think, Johnson? Well, he signed the release forms when he joined the force. He's legally dead. We can do pretty much what we want to. Lose the arm. Okay, let's go. Bye. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 104, and our movie this week was Robocop from 1987, and joining me to talk about it because somehow you'd never seen it before, returning to the show is Josh Monroe, a.k.a. Joosh. How you doing, man? Man, it's been a minute. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Good. So, uh... Yeah, it has been a little while, uh, and it's great to have you back. Um, so I have to ask, how how is it? We're about the same age. How did you never see RoboCop? Is it just not something you were interested in, or? So there was um, basically growing up in a uh, con- somewhat conservative uh, household. Uh, we weren't allowed to watch a lot of things that were of a certain rating. Um, and so there was a whole, like, genre, like, all the horror movies, a lot of the action movies, didn't get to see those until I was like almost into my twenties. And at that point, like the luster had worn off. So like by the time I got to see like a nightmare on Elm Street, it was like, Oh, why were, why were people scared of this? Cause I was older at that point. So right. Robocop was one of those things that like, I knew of it. I knew about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was always like, I should watch that at some point, but it wasn't like of enough importance at any moment like yeah i feel like and actually watching it to to prep for this i was like i feel like i could have watched this 20 years ago and enjoyed it just as much as i did now yeah and it's just like why did i wait I... <laughs> well i mean why why do we wait on anything i didn't see shawshank redemption until just a few weeks ago for whatever yeah. reason so we all have our blind spots um yeah so and it's just as prevalent in your world and existence, even though you haven't seen it. So it almost mm-hmm. feels like phantom movie syndrome. It's like, yeah, it's there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, all right. I, I do want to talk about the cast because there is some pretty cool casting in this movie. Uh, and, and A lot st- of people in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really is. So to start, Peter Weller. Um, and this wasn't, this really helped, helped his career, but it wasn't the first thing. He had done Buckaroo Banzai uh, before this. And, but he, I really like him in this movie. Um, he got the role in part because he had mime training and I guess the story goes, like he hated yeah. And, and well, yeah. he was, he was the right build. He was a slender build five ten, And the other thing I read was that he had a, a very expressive lower face, which makes sense. If you're, uh, if you're looking for that, uh, for this part, I can, I can see that. Yeah. But apparently he hated the the suit. Like it was just awful to work in. It was big. It was bulky. It was in, almost impossible to move in. The first day he put it on, it took like 10 hours to get into it or something. And oh, wow. then they had to take like him and his mime coach and the director, Paul Verhoeven, had to take like three days to for him to relearn how to move because everything he thought he was going to do in the suit, he's like, I-, I can't do. I can't move in this thing. Yeah. And and this this blew my mind. Because these days, it certainly would not be this way. 
the suit didn't have like an active cooling system in it when they first built it. So, so he was losing (laughs) three pounds a day out of sweat and they finally had to stop and rebuild and put an air conditioner in the damn thing because oof. And and so I I noticed with a lot of the scenes, especially like when he would turn his head, mm-hmm. I was just like, there's like almost no like he he must have like a super thin neck because it was like there's very little connection between like the torso and the head. It it just looks like a robot. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. look like a person. So I'm yeah. sure he like thinned out and choked off a bit a little. I don't know. <laughs> Probably. Um, but what I liked about it was when they, the way that he and his mime coach kind of recon, reconfigured sort of his movements and made him move very robotically and very, um, deliberately, because I think, yeah. I think initially I read that they wanted him to be more fluid and move a little bit quicker when they realized that wasn't going to work. Um, what I think they ended up going with works really, really well because it's memorable, um, in a way that I don't think. It's sort of like, so last week we covered Predator, and the initial design for Predator on paper looked really, really cool until they built it uh, at a full scale and put it in a, you know, put a guy in a suit and then realized this looks silly, and they completely redesigned all that, and we got the Predator that we have now, which is iconic. I kind of feel the similar thing happened with this, where it's like, they had an idea where they wanted to go. Once they got the, the props and everything, they had to go in a different direction, and it works better. Like, this, this just, for yeah. me... And we'll talk, I do want to talk about the sound design in a little bit, but that coupled with uh, his movements and the overall look and how well they did with all the prosthetics. I mean, when he takes the helmet off and that that look where he's got the half metal head and then it's Peter Weller's yeah. face, that's, that looks good today. They have to have, they, I mean, I don't know how deep you looked into this, but they have to have had fake heads as well as the prosthetic because like there was a couple of shots that it, that couldn't have been his face with what was being done right so they had to have a few fake heads as well oh i'm sure i'm sure and i do yeah. have i do have some things to to mention with the the special effects that we'll get to later um but yeah it was I very just, convincing it was oh. dated but very convincing still yeah mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so yeah i thought peter Weller. he's also got that voice that that real deep commanding voice that worked then obviously they modulated it some and, and played around with it a little bit, but yeah. even the early but could scenes, also be softer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is like the overall story kind of deals with RoboCop realizing and finding humanity in, in a, in a way like it's, there's some subtext of that buried in there. It's not the prominent necessarily. I don't know. This movie has got some interesting layers to it, um, which doesn't it doesn't seem like it should but the more you think about it and the, and if you watch it multiple times you start to catch different things that you're like oh okay all right and that's one of them is like this murphy murphy finding his humanity again is a big part of this movie and weller does a good job of being robotic but then also being able to emote and and give you at least some idea that there's you know there's still stuff going on in there so I'm and then very... everybody else has pushed an arch and so one note. They're almost robotic in how they don't have any range at this point. They're just committed to their mm-hmm. ends and they're they're just following their programming that they've created themselves. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um so our our main bad guy, I guess we we can say, is Jones, uh played by Ronnie Cox. And I like Ronnie Cox. This is not my most memorable thing for him because kind of like what you just said, it's very, he's very one note. He's very just, I'm evil, bad guy. 
mustache twirling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but in the hands of somebody other than Ronnie Cox, I don't think it works as well either. So, you know, he's, yeah. he's he got on this a pretty well-known Star Trek episode that I, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I also remember him from that God awful Captain America movie, uh, with JD Salinger's kid as uh, Captain America. If you haven't seen it, don't, but he was in it as like the president. Um, it's one of the only things I remember from that movie is, uh, is Ronnie Cox, but he, he's good in this. I, I cannot ever unsee though at the end when he meets his maker and they drop him out the window. Mm -hmm. it, did you notice how bad the dummy was they used for that? His arms like grew like two <laughs> yeah. feet. I was like, what is this? It almost looked like stop motion, like Harryhausen. Like <laughs> he was going to turn into something. I was yeah. confused. It was, oh, it was so bad. Um, but like overall, I mean, Ronnie Cox is great and he doesn't have a ton of screen time, which is interesting for who ends up being the main bad guy because they, they gave most of the screen time to Clarence Boddicker played by Kurtwood Smith, right? who is amazing in this. Like he's just having so much fun. You can tell. Oh, and yeah. it, there's a generation of people that think of Kurtwood Smith. They may not even know his name. They just know him as Red Foreman. And the funny thing about that is I recognize him as Red Foreman and I barely watched that 70s show. So, right. but him in this as Boddicker, he's just, just oozes evil. And he, you can tell like guys just having a blast the entire time. He's chewing scenery left and right as only Kurtwood Smith can do in my opinion, like the way that he does it. Right. Cause a lot of actors well, can what, chew. Like, mm -hmm. Right. I was going to say like, that's one of those. It's one of those roles. Uh, you mentioned him in that '70s show. And it's like a, a ton of people probably only know him from that. Mm -hmm. But it's like the benefit of going back and watching RoboCop, or if he was in a, he was in a Star Trek movie as well. He was the yes, president, he was. I think. But mm -hmm. um, it, just going going back and watching how they got to like these domesticated roles that they're in now that they can just kind of have fun with. Like Don Johnson is on one now. He's on a show as yeah. a dad. And it's like go look at what he's done before this to like <laughs> truly appreciate what, what he's doing here. You know, it's, it's good to just see the legacy of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and this, for me, this is the thing that when I think of Kurtwood Smith, I honestly think of this, I can think of Clarence Boddicker because he just, every scene he's in, he steals. Um, yeah. And he's got I have the, one person. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, he's got the, the great scene with RoboCop where um, he's getting arrested and RoboCop is throwing him through panes of glass as he reads him his Miranda rights. Yeah. And he's just freaking out. And that's when he starts spilling the beans on everybody. But immediately, like, I, I like how he's he's just, he just revels in being bad. He All he wants is to make a bunch of money off of people. So, you know, he's ready to walk out on Jones. And then Jones is like, well, you know, all these workers are going to be in trailers and trailers means drugs. And somebody's going to have to do that. And he's like, maybe we can still be friends. Like, yeah. Well, and it's, I appreciate with his character specifically, I appreciate that they had that him, that he and RoboCop had the interaction. Like you're a cop. Like you can't kill me. You have to arrest me. Like he, uh, Bedeker knew he couldn't be touched effectively. Mm -hmm. And so I think that only encouraged his sense of freedom and like does not care. Cause, and then it spread to like his, his, 
troop of guys, obviously. But yeah. if they didn't have that scene where he and Robocop identified, like, no, I know where your lines are, you won't cross, he would have just been a cartoonish villain. But I, I would, they, they grounded him a bit. Like, he knows yeah. the rules. Yeah, exactly. He's he. So I, I guess uh, he had originally um, he had originally auditioned to play the the part of Dick Jones, and thought that he was getting that role. But Verhoeven <laughs> Verhoeven wanted him to play Boddicker, uh in part because uh, he felt like his glasses um, and his look made him look uh, the the way the ra- the way the trivia was is it made him look more like Heinrich Himmler. And, mm-hmm. and it, it, it made more sense. It gave him, it gave him a look that he was more intelligent. And so it made more sense that he wouldn't just get outsmarted by, uh, by the protagonist. Whereas right. Jones could, cause Jones is just the evil, you know, corporate businessman. He could get outsmarted by him, but Boddicker is like, he's smarter than that. And the, his look made him look smarter than that. So it worked. Like in the end, it was much better to have Kurtwood Smith as as Boddicker than it would be would have been to have him as Dick Jones. Um, yeah, and that I mean that's that's a benefit of. I, I I'm familiar with Verhoeven. I've seen Starship Troopers mm-hmm. uh, in, in a long time. Um, I know he like has messages and stuff with the things he says. Yeah. So uh, well, I was gonna say I there was a whole like, not mythos, but like there's a lot of chatter about RoboCop, like since it came out and so going into it fresh having not seen it like i clearly have known and heard things and i tried to go in with like just i'm just going to watch the movie i'm not going to try to process it or think too deeply because people are still doing that from when it came out mm-hmm. um and it's like it was just a fun very simple movie but like now i can appreciate this other stuff um but i think i lost my point that i was getting to <laughs> <laughs> oh that's all right um I did want to mention, so Boddicker's gang has, uh, Ray Wise is part of Boddicker's gang. And I just love Ray Wise. Like Ray Wise, he's he's barely in the movie, which is kind of weird because I remember, I always remember him being in this and I forgot how little screen time he has, but he's just great. Uh, Yeah, I was glad to see when he came back at the end because he gets arrested he gets taken by robocop and then mm-hmm. when he came back i'm like oh we get more scenes with him yeah because he's great <laughs> well and we get another of scene course, with him i think there were twin peaks with him yep exactly this. oh definitely so. yeah i i definitely go to twin peaks or he had a recurring role he was in a couple episodes of psych that i really liked um and what was the one uh was it reaper that he did where he played the devil uh, uh the series I reaper I want to say it was. Yeah, that was like the kind of comedic one, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen that, but he might have. Yeah. And he's got one of my favorite reactions in this entire movie is when uh, Emil comes up to him after going through the toxic waste. Like, just (laughs) his eyes get the size of dinner plates and he he just freaks right out. It's so good. Um, Yeah. He's very animated. (laughs) Very. Yeah, I mean, even the the scene in the nightclub with him, he's so animated when he tries to kick RoboCop. <laughs> like, yeah. like, that's going to work. Um, uh, and then Paul McCrane played Emil. Um, I, I know I've seen Paul McCrane in other things, but honestly, I can't think of anything with him other than this. I, I guess he was on ER, I think, for a while, but I never watched that show. So yeah, I, mean, I mean, again, it was the same thing. I, I, all of these people, most of the people in the crew, I was like, I know that face. I don't know what I've seen it in. 
but I know that face and it, I, I could spend time looking at IMDb and try to figure it all out, but it's just, right. it's just, it resonates with something I've seen before. It's like deja vu almost like I know that face, but yeah. Yep. Uh, Miguel Ferrer is Bob Morton. Um, yeah. What I liked about him was he was the slimy corporate executive, but almost his his like sliminess wasn't so much bad as it was like just overly ambitious and he just wanted his project to work. Yeah, it was like an underdog, but then you realize that the underdog just wants to like be one of these greedy white men. Like so right. it's yeah, like, wait, exactly. what did we root for you? Just because <laughs> this is where you're going with it? Okay. Well, and then, you know, he gets taken out by a by a grenade. A hell of a grenade, too. Like one grenade yeah, blew up that yeah. whole house. Did he did Boddicker turn all the gas on before he left? I'm I'm curious. Um, yeah, that was a bit extreme. But I, mean, <laughs> I, knew, I knew that going into this, that there was like pushed violence and it's, it's mm. very effective. Um, oh. It's not just there for gratuity. It's it's supposed to be saying something. That's what I was saying before was the um, the wardrobe, the look, uh, Ver- Verhoeven's vision for this, I guess. Um, not just using like the dialogue to like tell the story, but like visually, yeah. you were talking about with Kurt with Smith, like what, what resonates with people when they see him with the glasses that, that undertones his character and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's where I was going originally. But yeah. 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 Um, and last person I wanted to mention in the cast, because, uh, this is the third different movie now that we've had him in is Dan O'Harely, um, who was the old man and he's yeah. the old, he's the old Credited man. In old man. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and I, I really, I like that because it like, I just, I love when a, a character gets credited as, you know, the old man or so-and-so's husband. Um, those credits yeah. always crack me up, <laughs> but Dan O'Harely. So he was in, uh, we, I've covered him for this show in Halloween three, uh, season of the witch where he was, um, he was the bad guy in that. And then, uh, he was also in the last starfighter and, oh yeah. And then in this, and what I like about him so much is he has just this buttery smooth voice. He's one of those that I just love to listen to any lines of dialogue he delivers. And in this, it was kind of cool because he's the old man. He's the leader of OCP, which is kind of a bad, like this, it's, it's positioned to be the really bad mega conglomerate, but he isn't. He, he's actually kind of like, I don't want to say altruistic, but he's he's genuinely trying to do good things. It's the people under him in this that are doing, you know, the evil. Um, and I like that. Yeah, but he it doesn't... is the oversight of So it's, he... I think it's like he has a knowingness. It's like, I know that there's stuff going on with this, but as long as we're not tipping the scales too far that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can see what you're saying there. It's just, it's nice where he's like, there's it's this fine line he has to be where he fires uh Jones at the end because obviously Jones is bad but earlier in the movie when there's the the guy that gets gunned down in the boardroom he just looks at him like I'm very disappointed in you right it's like it's a glitch you call yeah, this a glitch well <laughs> so it's, it's funny that and it's like everyone's freaking out while uh Ed 209's shooting that guy and then like it cuts to just well, I guess we'll file these papers and just take yeah. like another day at the office. <laughs> yep. Uh, and that's that's a little Verhoeven uh, satire right there for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I just this cast is great. Even um, Nancy Allen as, as Lewis. Um, mm. Verhoeven specifically wanted her to cut, had her cut her hair really short because he didn't want to, he didn't want the character to get sexualized. 
and to just be oh, really? um that's what i read so you know hmm. with as with any imdb trivia always take it with a grain of salt but right. it, it it works in that you'll just see her as the cop um so I like that. It, it, the funny thing is she's supposed to be the one that's been in the precinct longer, but I, for whatever reason, my brain always wants to make her the rookie. And she has a very rookie feel. I think the shorter hair gives you that like rookie feel as well. It could be that. Yeah. Cause she's clearly I not saw, the rookie. No. Well, I mean, he, well, and that's the, they, that's what's weird is like the movie RoboCop. It's, it's, is it the story of, it's the story of Murphy becoming this robot cop but like that isn't it like because that's that almost that's almost the b story to what's going on because mm -hmm. like you get little hints and clues of what happened but then he just keeps moving forward like oh i have a reason to do this i don't need to dwell on it um but it, i i watched a couple of little analysis videos after i watched the movie because i just wanted to see what some of what other people had been saying and they mentioned um Lewis's character, one of the Lewis's character was somewhat a mirror to Murphy because visually they had like similar facial structure and like the shorter hair mirrored as well. Okay. Um, so it was like, as he was trying to regain his humanity, like he could almost like see himself as a human through her, hmm. I guess. So I, I think maybe that was reading into it, but it was an interesting thought. I mean, it fits, but. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, one last casting thing I have to mention because it, so it came up as I was watching it this time. And I, I feel like I remember this from a time before, but as I'm watching the movie, I had this thought. And then as I'm looking at trivia later, it popped up and it was, the trivia reads like this. Despite an uncanny resemblance, the actor who played Kava Rosenberg is not Edward Van Halen, nor is it Alex Van Halen. The actor's name is Jim <laughs> St uh, Stickiesel. I thought, that it was Van Halen when I was watching the movie today. And so I immediately went onto IMDb while it's playing and looked up Eddie Van Halen. And I'm like, okay, nope, it's not him. That's weird. Cause it looks so much like him. So I had Which to mention this. That. He was when they, uh, so when there's the news broadcast about the, uh, police going on strike and it's the last yeah. guy they talk to where he says, Hey, you know, nothing in the world is free. And he's got like the curly dark hair. Right. 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 Yeah. Like, Dude looks so much like Eddie Van Halen. It's crazy, especially eighties eighties Eddie Van Halen. So that's it. It was weird. That shot stood out to me. It threw me off because of how Man on the Street candid it felt in the sea of everything else being like manufactured and prepared. So it it, it felt very significant in that aspect. But like I didn't even think of what he looked like. It's just <laughs> like wow, this is totally like going upstream the other way, like yeah. realistic grounding it, but it's like, yeah, let's get more violence going. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, so yeah, I mean, just a solid cast top to bottom. Uh, really, mm. really fun. Everybody's, everybody's having a good time too, um, which belies. They, their characters weren't having fun, but they were all having good times playing them. Yes. Yes. Uh, which is funny because Paul Verhoeven, this was his first American film. And wow. apparently, uh, guy's got a bit of a short temper and it didn't go mm. well early on in the filming of this, um, because he had, he had made like seven or eight movies in uh, the Netherlands. He's Dutch. Uh, he's Dutch yep. and he, he's no, he was known for having the short temper, but everybody there just kind of dealt with it. 
And I guess it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way on this set initially. And he, he kind of ended up going through and sort of apologizing to everybody for being so short-tempered. So it's funny that while I'm watching this, I feel like all the actors are just having a blast playing these parts. And then you, you read about, well, he's, you know, director's got a short temper. Peter Weller hated the costume, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, it doesn't show in the final product. So. Yeah. Or it reads as, it reads as their own inner frustrations and pain. Like it adds to it, but it's not, yeah, it doesn't distract. So. Mm -hmm. Now Verhoeven, so you, you mentioned you had seen uh, Starship Troopers. Um, Kind Mm -hmm. of a fun fact, this movie, Paul Verhoeven also directed Basic Instinct, Starship Troopers, and Hollow Man. All four, including RoboCop, went on to have franchises that Verhoeven didn't direct any more of, and all of them were either box office bombs or direct-to-video. Yeah, that was, I mean, that (laughs) time frame, he's he's not anomalous in that. There was a lot of people who had a great one movie, and then they direct to TV. I mean... But this is we're talking like the eighties into the nineties. This is cable TV and Yeah. I think a lot of a lot of that franchising stuff started. But it is it's a testament to like the original idea was good. Leave it at that. And and, and it's funny because when I was younger, I didn't care so much for Verhoeven. I didn't love Total Recall. Um I thought this movie was was pretty decent, but I wasn't a big fan of Starship Troopers. I didn't really care for Hollow Man. Um any of that as i as i look at it now through the lens of like watching movies for the last 30 something years i realize that verhoven's got a very interesting style and he has a lot to say which you had mentioned um but at first blush it doesn't come across that way like the when you think of robocop you don't think of some of the subtext that he tries to put in there uh or or starship troopers or all of that this movie was described as a uh, what was it? A a a leftist fascist movie, um, because <laughs> because it was it was a le- it was a leftist political bent, but through the lens of super ultra violence and militarization, which I kind of see um, that when you think about it. But Verhoeven just had this way of like over amplifying and satirizing things. So he would take the he. This movie, Total Recall, Starship Troopers is another example of it, where he takes that the violence aspect of it and he amps it up to 11 to really make it front and center and make you pay attention to it uh, in a way that you wouldn't. Because this movie is very uncompromising, and it's it's amazing to think that this became an animated series. And uh, <laughs> there were action, action figures and video games and all this kind of stuff that's you know very much marketed to kids, especially at the time. Yeah. Because Terminator, Alien, all the all that stuff was yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's just crazy to think that because this movie, it, like, it might be the most violent of all of those. Uh, mm. With the Ed two hundred nine scene being, I mean, you watch that now, that looks pretty nasty, even for an R rated film. Uh, with the way they did the squibs, like they're so almost yeah. cartoonishly uh, large. It was Raimi esque. It reminded me of Sam Raimi's early work too. It, yes, yes, that's a good one. Um, this movie actually had to go to the MPAA 12 times to get an R rating. Oh, geez. <laughs> and it's effective. That's the, that's the thing. It's effective. Violence. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it, it's ultra violence, but it has a purpose, uh, narratively. And 
So I kind of get that. Um, yeah. And it's also like the Emil in the toxic waste is one of those things that's burned. Once you see it, it's just burned into your brain. You'll never forget that. Well, it was funny because again, not knowing any, I mean, knowing broad strokes of this movie, I'm watching it and Neil's in the car chasing him down. And I just see the toxic waste thing. I'm like, all right, it's the late eighties. They have to have a toxic waste. Exactly. (laughs) It's a city. They have to have a toxic waste. And then of course he has to turn into a Cronenberg monster. Okay. I see this movie is just trying to throw everything into your grade. (laughs) So it's really funny. You mentioned Cronenberg. He was actually offered this movie and turned it down. Really? Um, I, I kind of want to see David Cronenberg's RoboCop. I'm not going to lie. There's, it would be a, different movie very different <laughs> yes uh it would be no less visually weird um in fact probably more so but it would it would be a very different movie but i i, I kind of want to see it i don't know i I'm, yeah. I'm not even sure what i would expect from it but uh i think i mean you probably get more than just peter weller's face with like metal skull like you'd probably get the process of transitioning him to becoming cybernetic and whatever, you know, they yeah, probably get of, more involved with that. Right. Instead of it all just being from his perspective as they work on him. Yeah. That's which true. I appreciated that. I, I liked mm-hmm. how personalized it felt, which is weird because it's very much his movie coming into it. But then once he becomes RoboCop, like the movie's kind of about everybody else and it's just, Oh yeah, we're going to follow him to the end of the movie, but it's all these other characters. <laughs> yeah. It, it's weird. Uh, the movie feels like it's a few different kind of stories sort of stitched together, almost like this yeah. would have worked today. And I say, I, I'm sure people that listen to the show are probably tired of me saying this, but it feels <laughs> like the way this, this kind of whole thing played out, if it were being made today, fresh with no, with nothing having come before it, that it would be like a 10 episode series. Yeah. And they would, they would expand on it more. You'd have, one or two episodes where Murphy gets, you know, before Murphy gets killed and uh, an entire episode about him becoming RoboCop and, and kind of that, that sort of thing. And, and, you know, maybe a, an entire episode that just follows Boddicker and his gang. Um, because there, there are sort of these weird, like there's the whole scene uh, in the Coke factory um, <laughs> yeah. that like where they place it in the movie almost feels out of place but yet it works Uh, it's it's weird yeah it's also i tried to look this up but i don't remember the names i'm watching this is another weird aspect of like things because watching this movie and realizing that a lot of stuff has been inspired by it of course Mm -hmm. i'm going to see things in this that resonate because they've been in other things i've seen yeah um (laughs) but i'm watching when he gets to the coke excuse me when he gets to the coke factory and i'm like the angles and the movements i'm like was there a call of duty map based on this location (laughs) because it's very similar to like a factory map in like one of the recent call of duty is like you turn around yeah you turn this corner and there's that oh you come around oh yeah that's where that is like it just felt very familiar so it was just weird with like recognizing people and recognizing other things like this movie is very already in my brain but i haven't seen it (laughs) yeah no, that's that's pretty cool. So that scene was kind of neat. So I like the pacing of that scene once they get to the shootout part of it. And apparently it wasn't intended to be that way. Um, initially, it's very intentional. Yeah. 
Well, initially it was supposed to be longer cuts, but they couldn't, the, the uh, blank firing automatic weapons they had kept jamming. So they couldn't get oh. more than like three seconds a shot. So in the editing room, they ended up having to cut it uh, a lot different. And it works. Like, I think it works quite a bit. Yeah. So, and again, it was, I was thinking about that while watching it. It, it was weird because, um, so when the, the, the cops that wanted to, they were talking about striking, there's like the shorter guy with the mustache and then there's the taller guy who looks like somebody, but I couldn't place him. Mm-hmm. Um, I know exactly. And when they mean. come back, they're introduced into the scene the same way, the same order. Like, uh, all of the guys in the shootout at the Coke factory, every time you saw them on screen, it was like, they, it, you never just got one background shot and then like they were killed off. Like there was, they had multiple shots. There was continuity. Um, and it was like when somebody popped up, I'm like, I know exactly who this person is. I know exactly where they were standing. Like I felt the space yes. of the scene, the way it was put together. Yeah. And that's something that a, is a, uh, is something that a good director can do is make you feel that space. I have so many times, especially in movies I've seen in the last say 10 years or so where I don't know where anybody is in relation to anything else. And it's hard for Mm -hmm. me to get into the action. I had that problem. uh, I remember vividly when I saw the remake of clash of the Titans, there were entire action sequences where I was like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. There's just a movement. And now the scene is over. And I yeah. guess the good guys won. But you're right. That scene, Verhoeven just does this good job of making sure you recognize and realize where everyone is. And that is something that I think gets underappreciated and should be mo- noticed more. Um, because it just makes a scene, it, it gets you invested in it more. You know, keep the a visual sim- storytelling. Yes. Yes. And it's a visual medium. Do the visual storytelling. Give us that. Mm-hmm. It also helps when you when you realize you've got a character like Robocop who, you know, he has this insane visual tracking that he can do. So it makes sense to block out the scene so that we know where everything's going on because we're essentially watching it through his eyes in a lot of ways. So I liked I liked that quite a bit. Um there was some fun things. So this movie had a budget of thirteen million dollars. Seems I mean, today it seems low. <laughs> even <laughs> for honest, what it was doing. Yeah, honestly, even for eighty, you know, eighty-seven, it feels like it should have been higher than that for the amount of effect work that they did. Yeah. Um, it was a commercial Most success. Of it still holds up too. Yeah, it really does. Um, I think the version I saw was like restored and cleaned up, but like it looked solid. Like it was, you knew what was animation and what wasn't, but like it mm-hmm. was believable. Like it fit. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the only thing that I don't think holds up as well is just the Ed 209 animation. And it's yeah. it's nothing against it. It was great at the time. It's just that's go motion, and you can tell right away. Yeah, but if they had tried to replicate RoboCop with the same type of it, like if they were trying to replicate uh, an organic being that way, it works because Ed 209 is a machine, I think. Yeah. If they were trying to like... Kind of like Harry Howe's and skeletons. Like if you put skin on him, it just looks weirder. So like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now the suit, I, I mentioned how Weller hated wearing it and he lost weight and all that kind of stuff. There are, so he couldn't get in and out of a car wearing that suit. Uh, so if you notice oh, wow. every shot of him entering or exiting the vehicle, it's always like, 
it's it cuts and he's already standing outside of the vehicle and then he gets the rest of the way out um or you see him open the door and then it cuts and he's inside the vehicle because he just he that couldn't is, he couldn't fit that explains so i was going to mention before so the very beginning of the movie the first ed 209 scene where he like brutally shoots up a guy um and then, like, the final climactic battle, it's like RoboCop pulls up. We cut to a shot of Ed 209. We cut back. RoboCop's out of the car yeah. with the gun, <laughs> kills Ed 209. I'm like, wait, so you kind of, like, led with the huge, gory <laughs> battle. And then now it's like, don't show him get out of the car. One shot, move into the building. Like, <laughs> yeah. Here we go. Right, we got pacing. We got a, we got a runtime to fit. Um, but I guess it explains, like, we can't really have, like, this mobile like running around dodging <laughs> yeah. like today they would totally have like homing missiles and tracking and yeah they would i haven't seen the remake obviously because i haven't seen this one mm. but um I, i'll probably check out the remake even though i've heard it's not great same yeah i haven't seen the remake either i actually was going to watch it um prior to this and i couldn't find it streaming anywhere that i you oh. know i it was it, it's rentable i just didn't feel like plopping down four bucks yeah. to, to rent it today um that's been my legacy with this movie is like, if it's on, I probably would have watched it. Like that's how I saw Die Hard the first time. It just happened to be on TV. And I was like, Oh, that's what this movie is. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, but yeah, so, okay. And, and kind of fun thing, all the shots of RoboCop driving are Peter Weller in the suit to his waist and then sitting in the car in his underwear. <laughs> Cause it was too hot. Cause it was, it was too hot and it was too bulky. He couldn't fit inside that car. Um, oh, wow. They also had the the shot where he walks down the stairs in the club. He's not wearing the suit from the waist down. And according to Peter Weller, that was the scariest thing to shoot because he had to walk down those stairs in that suit, but he couldn't look at where he was walking while he was doing yeah. it. So, <laughs> like, I can just imagine that must have not been fun at all. Um, yeah. And uh, one of the coolest shots in the movie is RoboCop grabbing the keys out of the air. And <laughs> yeah, I'm sure your reaction makes it sound like you might know this story, but they had to shoot that like 50 times. Um, oh, really? And no, basically, that. oh, yeah, they had to they they pretty much used an entire day's worth of filming for that oh, one, geez. that that particular insert shot, because the gloves that he wore were like foam rubber and they were real bulky. So he couldn't catch the keys. So if you look on YouTube, you can see outtakes where it's just take after take of him trying to grab it and the key's just bouncing off. Um, yeah, I just thought that's a, that's a thing that's been done in so many other movies. Oh, was yeah. this like one of the first instances of it or was this even just another iteration of it? I'm pretty sure it was another iteration. I remember, I feel like I've seen it in movies that were prior to this, but this was sort of taking that trope and and kind of half making fun of it and half sort of... Yeah, we're just going to use that because he's that cool. Um, it's also a very human thing to do. So for him, it's like seeing RoboCop do human things. Like, well, and it, it, it helps warm you up to him coming back to being uh, Murphy. Yeah, and it, they they hint at that already because the shot of him in the firing range where he where Lewis is starting to think that she knows it's Murphy when he's twirling the gun. Right, that's not something yeah. that a robot would do, but that's Murphy. Uh. So yeah, that that also makes sense. Um, yeah, just little hints there and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that suit apparently cost somewhere between a half a million and a million dollars, and it was the most expensive thing they had. 
Um, and, and it was designed by Rob Botton. Now, Rob Botton did a lot of the work on this. He uh, famously did The Thing, John mm-hmm. Carpenter's The Thing. And you had mentioned earlier about some of the fake heads and some of, the, some of that stuff that we, you could see. Like, so one of my favorite shots in this movie visually is it pans around Murphy. This is when um, Boddicker and his gang are killing him. And there's a shot yeah. that starts on Murphy and pans around, and then it ends on Boddicker when he shoots him. And it's it's a prosthetic, it's a fake head, and you can kind of tell, but it's a really good one. It's that it's got that Rob Botton look to it, where it's like, yeah, it's it's fake, but is it? It's it's right bordering on that, but it yeah. works so well for that that entire sequence, like that just visually. It's like the, it's like the subtle thicker outline on a cartoon. You're like, that's the thing that's gonna move because you yes. can tell like it's drawn just a little differently. You're like, I know that something's gonna happen here. Mm-hmm. But and I like that because there's no way you get that type of visual uh, shot in with the technology they had at the time, unless you build a right. fake Peter Weller um, to end it with him getting shot in the head and seeing the bullet, you know, the seeing the exit wound before the head drops out of frame. Like it's brutal, it's a yeah. gruesome shot, but it's so well executed. And I mean, Rob Botton just that dude knew what he was doing with practical effects and still does. Uh, between this and the thing and some of the other work that he's done, it's it's crazy. And yeah, uh, and I would imagine he probably worked directly with Cronenberg. Uh, not Cronenberg. <laughs> he probably worked directly with um, Verhoeven. Probably because obviously there was a lot of squib work and explosive stuff done, mm-hmm. but like it was kind of like with uh, the 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 coke factory shootout like everything was deliberate and intentional like it wasn't like oh we're gonna just shoot into this field and you're gonna see a bunch of ricochets like everything was intentionally placed and it was like shot at an angle for the most impact like Mm -hmm. that shot when Bedeker shoots him through the head like they didn't just they could have shot it in any number of ways but it was like no we're using this specific device and this is the exact way we want it to hit the camera yeah so well, and it's funny because uh, apparently Verhoeven and Botten initially did not get along. Um, they clashed, according to, again, trivia, but they clashed repeatedly <laughs> before and during production over the design and makeup of the RoboCop character. Uh, what they argued most about was the scene where Murphy takes off his helmet. So that scene is very important to the movie, right? When Murphy finally takes the helmet off. So Botten mm-hmm. wanted the scene to be filmed more darkened uh, to kind of hide some of the stuff and make sure, you know, because and traditionally that's how you would do that, right? You want to hide a lot of effects work is hidden. Yeah, yeah. And Verhoeven was like, no, no, I want it lit as bright as possible, um, <laughs> and I want to see everything. And his uh, his he's like, my cinematographer can light it, and it's gonna look it's gonna look great. So Verhoeven, of course, being the director, gets his way. Botten uh, reportedly refused to talk to him for the remainder of production, and then at the premiere. Both both men were so impressed with how the scene had turned out that they instantly forgave each other, and Botten agreed to work <laughs> on Total Recall. <laughs> so nice. he was like, "Well, I mean, good thing for that because Total Recall is pretty awesome." <laughs> oh yeah, but I just love that. It's like, look, we should do it this way. No, we're going to do it this way. Fine, you know what? Do whatever you want, and I'm and just storm off. And like months later, all right, you were right. <laughs> yeah, well, you're that, right. That's what good. I was talking about. Like, I didn't. I assumed that they probably worked together with 
figuring this stuff out because mm-hmm. you know you got somebody who's worked on horror movies but this is more of an action movie it's like yeah you're going to treat it a little differently you got to shoot it differently light it differently but it ultimately is what's the end goal which apparently was good so <laughs> yeah well that scene when he takes the helmet off because up until that point like we as an audience know it's murphy and right. you you know you get uh peter weller's jaw and his voice and all of that. And we've had one shot where his helmet's broken and you can see his eye, but Mm -hmm. we haven't seen his face. So when he takes that helmet off, it's so convincingly done the way they blended his skin into the prosthetic and, uh, and all of that, like it looks really good even today. Unfortunately, I've seen some of the sequel footage and they, they really cheaped out on it. Um, and it's sad because like, he he ends up the rest of the movie without the helmet on, and it's it just looks good. It, it's surprising that something thirty something years old like that can hold up that well, because there's really yeah. no reason that it should. Like it should look cheesy by today's standards, and it really doesn't. It yeah, and it that was where I was saying like I think it it made me think oh well they must have used a fake head for this, but then it's like no that's that's his face. But it's very, it looked like they pulled his skin over the <laughs> robotic pieces. It was like, yeah. oh, very convincing. But yeah. Yeah. If, if I didn't know Rob Botton had worked on this and you said, you know, and, and you told me, uh, or you had me watch this movie, I could, I would believe I'm like, this looks like similar stuff that I saw in the thing. Uh, it's that level of detail. Yeah. Um, so I love that. Uh, blah, blah, blah. So. I remember ads for vaguely for this movie and for um, kind of just RoboCop stuff in general. And one of the things was Ed 209 was prominent in all the advertisements, whether it was this movie or the video game uh, where I think Ed 209 is like the main boss at the end of it. Um, All that Ed 209 is barely in this movie. And it's weird because my memory is always that it's much more prominent and like he has a big fight with an Ed 209 and he sort of does, but not really. Yeah. I mean, they have their one action sequence where he's just getting his ass kicked by Ed and then manages to beat him because making a robot stairs. that can walk downstairs is like, how did they get it up there in the first place? They must yeah. never, never have gone through a single elevation change. Can so. you would think Ed 209 would know, again, the version they would make nowadays, like, oh, well, of course he's going to have, like, the whole facility mapped out, and he's going to know the quickest route to get to something. Like, yeah. He's not going to negotiate stairs. He's going <laughs> to just find the elevator or whatever. Right. But, yeah. Also, I, I always find it funny when you make a robotic character with, like, animalized sounds. Yes. He squeals like a pig when he falls over, apparently. Yeah, and he growls like a like a jaguar or a lion or something uh, yeah. when he gets angry. Like, it was, has a temper tantrum. Like, <laughs> was a strange uh, choice, I will say that. But yeah, no, we, I just it's, we programmed that. It's in, it's, it's meant to uh, notify someone that it's in need of assistance. It's like <laughs> no, <laughs> that's so good. Um, one other thing, so. This was a cool piece of trivia for me because last week, again, uh, we talked about Predator. And Predator uses a thermal imaging camera for the Predator vision. And that's a, an effect that looks really good still today. I, I feel like 
the way that thermal imaging uh, kind of has aged in the 30-something years since that movie came out. This movie, same year, also had thermal imaging, but it wasn't a thermal imaging camera. They didn't feel like they could afford that. So what they did for that scene where he's using thermal imaging through the wall was it was fluorescent body paint on naked actors under a blacklight. And then they just composited that in. And it definitely looks really different. It works, but it definitely like, I think part of it is because again, I just watched predator last week. So then I'm comparing in my mind, but I thought that was an interesting way to get around that. Like, so, you know, instead of thermal imaging, just a little paint and uh, composite. Um, Yeah. Well, and to, to, to further the, it works more better than it should uh, when they first boot up Murphy as RoboCop mm-hmm. and there's like a grid in front of him and they go to like screw in the four bolts <laughs> and every time they screw one in the grid gets a little closer like yeah. wait this shouldn't be moving into his face like but it's like okay I, we get what you're saying every one of these is getting him closer to this persona he has become but like <laughs> that yeah. wouldn't work that way no <laughs> No, there's definitely some things that, that shouldn't work, but they, they do somehow. Um, it's effective in what it's trying to say. <laughs> yeah. It's like his his spike, right? The spike that he uses yeah. to, to read information. Like, I've ne- do, you, do you know of a computer interface that would ever use that? No, but they happen to have it on the few things he needs in order to get information. Yeah. So, And also, that's effectively his dongle like it's basically yeah. it's like oh this is just a, a media port that's all it is yeah exactly. it's like he doesn't register i could use this as a weapon until the end of the movie which in every other movie you see some a robotic person with a giant spike it's like they're gonna stab somebody that's why they pulled it out and he's yeah. like i need to send an email <laughs> <It's> <laughs> nope. like, oh wait that's what this is for okay yeah it was uh it was check off spike um yeah <laughs> so uh all right this movie was actually nominated for three Oscars, which is if you just watched it, you might not think that this could ever get nominated for anything, but they were all technical. Um, best uh, yeah. sound, it was best sound, best sound editing and best film editing. It won mm. for best sound editing and rightfully so. The sound design in this movie is phenomenal. All the work that went into just RoboCop himself and how he moved and the sound for his movements mm-hmm. is Oscar worthy. It's just great. Like, and that's the thing is, and I've talked about this recently quite a bit. Take a simple story and give us complex characters and then pay attention to details when you're filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And those are yeah. the details that make this movie rewatchable and enjoyable that aren't in your face, right? The sound design is something that you don't think about, but if it was bad, it, you notice it. And in yeah. this case, it was it was really good. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, again, I haven't seen the reboot but, or the remake, <laughs> but I'm sure they did. They might have started with the TV uh, news broadcast, which was very effective exposition in this. It, mm-hmm. it, it set you up for what was happening in the movie. But like... Uh, Movies today, they would they would try to over-explain everything. And oh, yeah. I, I mean, they would probably spend more time... Well, I guess, as a, as a parallel, I did see the Total Recall me, Total Recall remake. Okay. And it was very... Like, it was, like, not beat for beat, but it was, like, similar structure of plot and everything, but it didn't feel as believable because they tried to, like, fill in 
more detail for each of the characters. So rather than just, oh, I see this gun spinning and I'm thinking of my son and I'm getting a flash of a memory and like, that's all we need to know. We can move on. Mm -hmm. They probably would have spent, you know, an hour. Like I remember when my son turned five and like, <laughs> it's like, wait, no, yeah. we don't need all this. We just, we need the visual cue and then move on. Like, it's how you tell it, not all of what you're putting in there to yeah. tell just how you're telling it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, just a very simple thing of uh, Lewis walks up, sees him spin the gun and immediately we know as an audience, she realizes it's probably Murphy in that, or that reminds her of Murphy. So yeah, I love stuff like that. Um, yeah. But yeah, just uh, the sound design. And then the, the stunt work in this was really great too. Um, the, uh, mm. the guy that, the guy that robs the convenience store where he walks in and grabs a comic book um, and then, <laughs> you know, pulls a giant semi-automatic rifle out of his coat. Um, he was the stunt coordinator and, uh, I guess it was his idea to get thrown into the glass, um, like the the glass cabinet, which was a, a really cool. That that whole scene was kind of fun because it's the first time we get to see RoboCop as RoboCop, and it the way the yeah. the way the structure was, you had like a half an hour because this movie is about an hour and forty five minutes roughly, um, mm -hmm. and it's got a, a an interesting structure to it because it starts off and we get about a half an hour before Murphy is killed. So yeah. it's between the news broadcasts and then sort of day one of Murphy and Lewis and right up until uh, they, they, the Boddicker gang kills him. That's about a half an hour. And then it's like 10 or 15 minutes roughly of lead up to RoboCop being introduced. Um, and it's already I, in the middle of the movie at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're dead. We're dead in the middle of the movie, and we're just getting RoboCop on screen. Which I did like the reveal of him. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, again, sound design. The sound of his footsteps is like as soon as I hear that sound, I'm like, "Oh, it's RoboCop!" Every time, <laughs> I just they, like there's something so unique about the way they made him sound. How heavy they made him sound uh, was really cool. Yeah. So you get to that point, and now it's we're in the dead center of the movie. And now we're going to have a montage of him going out and breaking up crimes, you know, which normally you would probably put in act one of a movie like this. Uh, we're getting it sort of middle of act two kind of, um, but it's, but it's act one of RoboCop. Yeah. Um, or they would have shown, I mean, effectively to mirror that they, sh they, they did have one scene of him as a cop, as a, a human, but it was better Chris crew. So it was like, well, they didn't yeah. have to show him walking the beat to establish this is what his normal day is like. It's they the two incidences of him. Well, yeah, the the, the one incident of him being a cop is Bedeker's crew kills him. Yeah, and then after that is uh, all the RoboCop stuff. So yeah, basically. Um, but but they're they're memorable scenes with with the convenience store one because he grabs the gun, bends the. Uh, mm. just, just bends that um, barrel on it and then throws the guy around and just says, thank you for your cooperation and leaves. Like you're not even gonna take the suspect yeah. with you. You just beat the hell out of him and leave. All right, cool. Uh, and then he goes and stops the, the woman from getting uh, accosted in the, in the alleyway and shoots the guy through her skirt um, in the crotch uh, and then leaves. Nothing, nothing really like it, it's interesting. RoboCop does a lot of policing, but not a lot of police work. He just does a lot of shooting. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was... <laughs> and I mean, and, I guess 
technically he could just run processes to do the paperwork in the background while he's true going about stopping things true <laughs> I, I didn't think of it that way but you're right because the only the only criminal he brings into the station is Boddicker who ends up getting out because he's connected yeah so um, well he arrests Ray Wise character as well oh that's he well brings him in, but... yeah well, I guess we don't see him bring in Emil either or you know any of those guys um, yeah. but and yeah it, you were talking about the uh when the guy got thrown through the glass in the convenience store. Yeah. It's funny because I hadn't registered it, but getting thrown through glass was a very consistent thing with this movie. Like yes. if there was a pane of glass, someone was getting thrown through it. Except for the guy at the gas station where yeah. they used the framing to keep him in the box the whole time. And you're like, something's going to happen because all we've seen is panes of glass get killed, like get killed or get broken. So it's like, clearly this guy isn't safe. Right. It's like, no, he just, he stays there the whole time. And then Robocop, you know, gets him out and he's like, okay, but it plays with that expectation. It adds to the tension. It's true. It does. Um, yeah. The, so then the scene where he, where he gets Boddicker is great because he's reading his Miranda rights as he's throwing them through all that stuff. But so, so we have that kind of middle bit where he goes out and does his policing stuff. And then we go back to the Boddicker gang and, Meanwhile, we throw in all the stuff with Miguel Ferrer's character for fun. Uh, that that bathroom scene though is hilarious. That is such a well kind of constructed scene because as he walks into that executive bathroom with his buddy, and they're you know they're just talking up a storm. Oh right! And the camera pans low, <laughs> and all you see are feet and pants around somebody's ankles. And as soon as they start talking about uh, Jones. That like your brain is just like, I bet that's whose feet we just saw. And then, but you, you also get that from everybody's reactions. Everybody else in the bathroom knows that Jones is in there and they're like, Oh shit, we're out of here. And they all leave. And then that That moment, it's interesting. Okay. I was just gonna say, and then the moment where he opens up the stall and walks out and the other guy is just like, Oh, I got a meeting. And he's trying to zip up and like pissing on himself as he leaves. Yeah. Well, what was interesting is that I feel like all of the um, OCP corporate scenes and Miguel Ferrer's character in general, um, like I said, there's like an underdog quality to it. But it's like all of the scenes that he walks into, it you can tell they all feel like he's joining a conversation already in progress and everybody else already knows the score. Mm-hmm. And he's walking in like, yeah, it's the first quarter. And everyone's like, dude, we're down by five. Like, read the room. <laughs> it's like he continually walks into situations where he's the only person who doesn't see what's happening. Yes. <laughs> Which is kind of funny, but it's also like, yeah, we don't care as much when you get killed because you're not a true underdog. You're just, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Um, no, I just, there's so many good, like little moments like that one in the bathroom and, and all this other stuff. Uh, and then and that tracking shot when they established the boardroom, which is just Mm -hmm. really well done. Oh yeah. That was one thing I did read was that, uh, Verhoeven really wanted to keep the energy going. So he would shoot even scenes of just dialogue with Steadicam and kind of keep the camera moving all the time, which again, Sort of like what we were talking about with the shootout scene and the way that they edit it and the way that they covered it so that you knew where everything was. It's another bit of visual shorthand to keep things moving, to keep that that energy and the pacing. Because this movie's really well paced for the weirdness of like the way the story kind of weaves. Because it's like, all right, we're with we're with Murphy and now we're not, and now we're with Robocop, but then we're gonna have scenes that 
don't really have anything like it should there there's parts of this movie that feel like it should bog down and it never really does because of the way that Verhoeven shot it it keeps that pacing yeah. going really well i remember when when lewis has to go in to get stuff for murphy mm-hmm. and then they show her returning they hadn't like they showed her and murphy like escaping everybody shooting at him yeah and then they show her coming back with stuff and i'm thinking to myself wait this is where he got shot up this is where they decided if, if they were looking for him wouldn't they go to the place <laughs> where he got killed where they found him like that seems like the most obvious place to hide like why would you go here and but it was just weird because i was like maybe they're doing something else and then no it's just she walks in did you get the stuff yeah okay here it is and they just <laughs> commence they, it doesn't waste time with the questions it just keeps moving forward and i'm like mm-hmm. oh, it's just as it is as simple as it is it's just gonna keep going okay <laughs> yeah basically um, they had get, the location. They may as well use it again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we we paid for the location. We're shooting in the location, and you know the, the movie too. It has kind of two climaxes, really. If you think about it, it's got him in that location, um, getting rid of Boddicker's gang, and then the boardroom. So there's yeah. sort of, and and the thing with the thing with the end of this movie, and I always forget it, and then I watch it, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Is he literally? He goes into the boardroom. He's got his directive four, right? That he can't he can't uh, arrest any senior OCP officials. The old man fires Jones. He says thank you. Shoots him a bunch of times. Roll credits. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like the movie's like. Well, we're done. We didn't have an ending. Uh, yeah. That's that's our ending. Here we go. Uh, one of and- the one of the I was gonna say one of the analysis things that I saw. I and I just I didn't register it until I saw this little video, but it's like he is RoboCop and then he's finding his way back to being Murphy. And the last line of the movie, like that's some good shooting boy. Who are you? And it's like, I'm Murphy hard cut to RoboCop. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I'm Murphy <laughs> RoboCop. Like, which one are you? Mm-hmm. Yep. No, it's totally. Uh, and, but I, I honestly, I don't mind that. Uh, that was something that a lot of eighties movies did because when we, when I covered uh, Running Scared for the show, and as many times as I watched that, that movie ends very similarly. They they kill mm-hmm. Julio Gonzalez, and then they just walk away, and the movie ends. And you don't get any of the resolution or the, the aftermath stuff. Um, yeah. I don't know if that was a, a conscious decision throughout the 80s to not do that, and we've like changed and, and wanted more. Because even um, Die Hard did the same thing, right? And it ends with they drop Hans out the window, and then he finds Holly, and that's it. Movie's over. Um, this one was just the hardest cut of all of them. It's like <laughs> he's the guy's barely hit the pavement, and you're just like, boom, credits. So, but I, I mean, oh. they, they could have they could have ended it with, oh, he kicks out Bedeker and all of his guys, and then you see uh, Jones like flying away in a helicopter, and it cuts to like. RoboCop will return. You know, like they could have had an ending there that would have been somewhat satisfying. Mm-hmm. But like, it, it's weird because, like you mentioned, the two climaxes. Like, he pulls into the police. Uh, he pulls into OCP. They don't show him get out of the car. He just takes out Ed Two Hundred Nine in one shot. He goes upstairs, grabs Jones. Uh, I can't do anything till you fire him. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's very efficient. Mm-hmm. It's just tying up. It is tying up loose ends. So it feels abrupt, but it's like. 
you were already in like the the cooldown. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, also, the uh, the weapon that he uses to take out Ed Two Hundred Nine and that uh, Boddicker's gang had those those Barrett fifty cal's that were being used as essentially cannons <laughs> is the most yeah. the most ridiculous weapon uh, imaginable. And I love it. I just it's so dumb, and I love the hell out of it. That and RoboCop's sidearm, which initially was supposed to be the Desert Eagle, and they had him. It's uh, very Desert Eagle looking. Yeah. Well, so I, I guess there's behind the scenes photos of him in in the costume holding a Desert Eagle, and they were like, it still looks too small. And if you've ever held a Desert Eagle, you know that that's just a crazy thing to say because those. Yeah, those handguns are gigantic, but they had some heft. They uh, so they had to modify a Beretta um, with uh, all sorts of stuff to to make something that looked big enough to be intimidating in his hand. So, I think extending the barrel really helped. It definitely yeah. looked longer. So mm-hmm. definitely. Well, one weird thing about the big gun that they were using. Um, so <laughs> all of those guys, all those henchmen. They're just running around, hip firing, <laughs> oh, shooting yeah. these shots at all this stuff. The shot of Robocop killing Ed 209 with the same gun, like the kicks are out, the, the little legs are out. It's mounted to the top of the car, like for <laughs> stabilization. I'm like, wait, you're the robot. You should be able to compensate for this. And it was like everyone else just willy nilly hip firing. I was like, yeah. did they prep that? They probably did that because. Weller had to just literally step in and they couldn't have him carry the gun around. That probably, probably. Been way too hard. Yeah. But it was just weird. Like you needed extra support. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And, and the funny thing was, is I noticed it even more in this, how everybody was hip firing after last week in predator was the same thing. This highly trained military unit and every single person in that movie just fires from the hip constantly. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Like, nobody aimed a weapon in the entirety of predator and <laughs> And I don't think anybody aimed a, a, a weapon in this except maybe Lewis. So it's just funny True. to me. That was 80s, though. Which right? was also ridiculous overkill. <laughs> it's like, yeah, let me just shoot this. <laughs> okay, oh, yeah. yeah, he's down. <laughs> oh, yeah. This, the scene where, and the scene where Boddicker's gang uh, takes out Murphy is just brutal. Ah, it's so rough. And apparently the un, there's an unrated version. I don't know if that's what I saw or not. Um, cause I watched this on Amazon prime. Yeah, me too. Um, so I don't know if it was the unrated or just the R rated version, but man, that scene with where Murphy gets killed is just brutal and it goes on forever. But again, that's, Which that's, is, that's the violence weird. of this. But it's, it's weird because again, the similarities between Murphy and Lewis having mm-hmm. seen Murphy go through that scene and knowing he's going to become RoboCop and then he comes back. When you see that happening to Lewis later, it's weird because it didn't register me as it didn't register to me as, oh my gosh, Lewis is dead. It registered as, oh, they're going to turn her into a Robocop. Like it, it, that was the next logical conclusion for me. It wasn't a mortal person as being injured and may die. It was like they already established when we shoot people like this, they're probably going to come back as a Robocop. Well, not only that, but Robocop even says like, they'll fix you. They can fix anything. Right. Like they were but while they were to... shooting her, I was saying it didn't register. As, oh yeah, oh, no. Yeah. Like yeah, I'll just those throw the arm back on. Yeah. Um, so I mean, overall, like, this movie's fun. Uh, in in like yeah. a weird in a weird kind of way, like it 
it's it's brutal it's very very violent it's not uh it's not a pleasant story but yet somehow it's still fun to watch i i you have to you have to be able to deal with the the gratuitous violence of it but it, it almost yeah. is like cartoonish in the way that it's violent um right well like i was saying going back and watching a nightmare on elm street movie or whatever now as like you know an almost 40 year old guy it's like Oh, how quaint. Like, <laughs> like seeing, plus knowing how they did some of the effects and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like, but I'm also thinking like, I've got, you know, my nephew is going to be 12 or 13. And I'm like, would he, sh- would, should he be watching this yet? And I'm like, I don't know. It's yeah. So I'm starting to, for my own personal taste, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm good with this. I can take this. I can see violence as one of the many colors they're painting with. It's not just, yeah. it's not hostile. It's just something else. Yeah. It's not visceral. Right. Well, and and the thing with a movie like this and violence is because of the sci-fi type of nature of it. Um, it's still incredibly violent, but it's not the same. It, I don't know. There's there's something different about it from from a movie that is more grounded in reality and being incredibly. Yeah, there's violent. like a license that gives it more rain to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's still. I mean, I I definitely can see where you know you would say somebody twelve, thirteen years old. Eh, Maybe not. You know, you might want to wait, but it's going to be individual to the kid too. I think at this point, I would I would more recommend somebody watch RoboCop after they've like if you want to watch an action movie, sure. Like I feel mm-hmm. like a fifteen year old kid could probably watch this and be like, you're not going to see anything that's like worse than what you're seeing now on other stuff because um, it's dated. But like, I would almost hesitate to suggest it to somebody until they were able to better appreciate some of the nuances of it. Yes. Like it, I think it's, I think it exists more or, or why it continues. The legacy of it is less like it was the fun action movie. Um, but like, I think I would suggest it more as like a study piece. Like, yeah, why don't you watch this and like, tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because like I said, there, there's layers to it that, um, that you don't immediately you don't think of, but as you think, as as you process the movie more, you kind of pick up on some of those other things that are going on. And that also gives it really good rewatchability. So it was just fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I highly recommend the movie and I'm glad that you watched it. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Um, do you, do you think had you seen this at, uh, you know, between like 12 and 15, as opposed to almost 40, that, that it would have had a big impact on you? Uh, in your in your kind of film taste, or does it feel like something that just wouldn't have hit with you at that time? Um, I think at that time for me, the I think I probably wouldn't have been able to get past the violence. I probably wouldn't have understood it for the tongue in cheek, excessive tone that it was trying to go for i probably would have been more upset by it and not be able to get past that to like appreciate the rest of the elements of the story um i think about like when you mentioned that time of my life like being 14 15 um the rock is kind of that movie like it was violent and it was significant for when i that and alien 3 i think i watched them in the same weekend i was like oh these are violent but like now I i look at it and i'm like oh they were just action movies but it was like that was my first uh initiation into like where movies could go with this stuff and i think robocop probably would have been a little bit more kind of like a slasher movie probably would have been a little bit more than my taste were at that time Mm -hmm. but uh yeah 
Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you know, Phil in the chat talks about seeing this as a kid and thought it was too weird and he didn't like it. And he saw it again as an adult and realized how much he enjoyed this movie and what he thought of thought of it as being you know pretty genius. And I get that. It's sort of so I was talking to somebody recently about uh, Shawshank Redemption and how I hadn't seen it until just recently. And one of the things that uh, they asked me was, well, how did it live up to all the hype that you heard about it? I'm like, honestly, it exceeded it. And I don't know that had I seen it in 95, 96, that I would have appreciated it the way that I do now. And it's sort of the same. A little more distant helped it, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And and this is a movie that I, I do feel like benefits from that um, for all the reasons that you mentioned. So it's very cool. Uh, this Look, this has been fun. I, I love talking movies with you. And it was nice to have you back. It's been too long. Uh, so we're going to have to do it again. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, you mentioned it, running scared, and I was like, have I seen? Oh, yeah, we talked about that on here, didn't we? <laughs> I completely forgot about that movie. <laughs> yeah, running scared. And then I think last time you were on was UHF. So it's been, it's been yes. quite a while. That's been a while, yeah. Um, but definitely got to do it more often because it's always a good yeah, conversation. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised we found one that I hadn't seen, too, because I'd, I'd love to explore more things that I haven't seen. So. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. When you mentioned uh, that you hadn't seen it, I was like, that's perfect. That's a perfect one to have him come back on. Um, so awesome. Well, thank you again for coming, for coming back. Uh, always a pleasure, Josh. Um, yeah, man. Happy to be here. And, uh, so I, I, I do have coming up, uh, next week I am watching the prestige, uh, and I'm doing, uh, the first of back to back Christopher Nolan's. Um, we're going to watch uh, a Christopher Nolan that I know, which is the prestige. And then one that I don't, which is Dunkirk. I've never seen Dunkirk. So that's going to be the next two weeks, uh, coming up are those two movies with, uh, Nisbet who's in the chat right now. So nice. that's going to be quite a bit of fun. Um, I just rewatched Memento. Memento is a, still holds up. That's yeah, a solid movie. So good. <laughs> I love that movie. Um, I never thought I would, I would understand a movie being told backwards and yet it works. It's so good. Uh, so I record, <laughs> I record the show, uh, Sunday nights at Twitch, twitch.tv slash TV Travis. Um, if you want to be like, JF DeBow and Phil Rudd and Nisbet and hang out Phelan be in the chat uh, with us while uh, while we talk about this movie and then uh, comes out as a podcast on Wednesdays wherever you can find podcasts and the easiest way to subscribe is actually Twitch or uh, TVstravis.com um, and you can find the subscribe button right there so uh, and uh, if you do enjoy the show go to your podcatcher of choice whether it's Apple Google wherever and leave us a uh, leave me a um, a review, uh, rate the show. It helps the show become more discoverable for other people. So, uh, I always appreciate that. But yeah, next week is going to be, uh, the prestige. I can't wait. Cause I really, really enjoy the prestige. It's not my favorite Nolan. I think memento is still my favorite Nolan film. Um, but the prestige has some really, really fun stuff to talk about. So I can't, I can't wait for that. Uh, yeah, Kirk, I, like, I think the, well, the prestige for me, I mean, you're going to talk about it. I know it's just because it was, Christopher Priest, the book, because it was based on a book first, Nolan was able to work with it and make something from it. So it feels different than like Inception and Batman yeah. and Memento. because It's not wholly his, but what he did with it really took it places. Mm -hmm. I think Christopher Priest even mentioned that he really liked how it came out. Yeah, uh, it's, it's phenomenal. Good, so, <laughs> no, I can't, I can't wait to talk about that one next week. Um, but yeah, uh, until then, um, just remember to uh, enjoy your movies and 
you know, things are, are starting to look up, but the world's still weird. So, you know, be excellent to each other. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>